you don't want to read the nursing notes in the department, just be prepared to read them from the stand in court. What they have to realize is that that kind of behavior went out with red meat. Being found dead is never a good prognostic sign. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, the September issue of Risk Management Monthly coming to you. Now, Greg is on the line. Greg's in Ann Arbor. Hey, Greg. Hey, listen, we're enjoying an almost cloudless day at uh, 72 degrees, and it is lovely, Rick. Yeah, well, the fact of the matter is, is we had two inches of rain, which we are totally unused to. The normal rainfall for September is a quarter of an inch, and we had two inches, which is, you know, w- wonderful for us. We need it desperately, but... As you know, we just had a power outage at my house, so I had to drive up to Ricky's and stop for a couple of donuts on the way. Yes. <laughs> and did you buy one for the bears that live behind uh, little Ricky's house, no, too? I don't see any, uh, any wildlife out there now. Okay. Um, and on top of this, on top of this, we recorded this yesterday, and we did a fabulous job, except yesterday I forgot to push a button, and Greg forgot to push a button. And we, we thought we were talking away, but we weren't recording anything we're talking about. So anyway, we're going to do a great job, I hope. Uh, yeah, we're <laughs> going to do the best we can. And by the way, Rick, you push my buttons all the time and, and get me going on these shows. But we're going to go <laughs> You're now. You're too kind. Yeah, we're going now to the, uh, to the people who really make this show by the kind act of sending in your, your money. But also no, no, no. right these, these guys send letters. But these are the people who send letters, which are almost as important. Mark Dane sent us what looks like a newspaper clipping. And um, I love this case. It's a University of Texas student is claiming malpractice. He went to an urgent care center. And it's not commented upon who owned this urgent care center, whether it was the university or not. But he went with sudden testicular pain and was diagnosed as having, quote, unquote, blue balls. Now, I don't know about you, but in my 140-some thousand patient career, I never wrote down that as a diagnosis. I always thought that's what we told our dates in high school that they needed to perform to help us or otherwise otherwise our penis would fall off. But apparently that's what this urgent care told him. And they said the, their, their advice to him was to masturbate and see what happens. Well, the problem didn't resolve and subsequent and in a subsequent visit to a quote unquote better facility resulted in the correct diagnosis. The correct diagnosis being what, Rick? A torus testicle. Yeah, I'm I'm not a smart guy. If you had sudden pain in a testicle in a young man this age, the only couple things I can think of is if it's really minute to minute sudden onset pain. This is a torse testicle. It's like everything else in medicine. If it happens in seconds to minutes, it's vascular. Number two, it's infective. But there's no evidence here that they checked him for an infection of any kind in any event. Surgery for the torse testicle was not successful due to the uh, time delay. And all I can say is that if this is the way you're practicing, (laughs) you need to go back to med school. This is not a good case. You don't have blue balls in your differential? 
I don't have it. Not, not well. I may have them, but it's not in my differential. At your age, you ha- you're lucky if you have any balls. Any balls, exactly right. Well, you know, and you know, Rick, this is just the kind of thing that if you're sitting here thinking, you know, and I'm as pro defense guy as you can get. What's the defense in this case? I have no idea. I'm afraid it's a cute case of medical ignorance. Right, uh, in, it really is. In any case, there is a series of cases on testicular issues. Found this in the uh, Medical Legal Aspects of Testicular Torsion in the journal Urology, April 2001. Looked at the experience of a New Jersey-based insurance company between 1979 and 1997. So this old data. There were only 39 cases. Median payment was $45,000. It's noted that the vast majority of such cases reached settlement before going to trial. They subsequently said, well, let's see if we can find any more recent cases. They found it in 2012. They found a case in Dallas where they went to court and no money was awarded. Wow, no money for testicular torsion, which brings up the issue of... Well, it depends what you're suing for, Rick. Where's the damages? Yeah, exactly. If if you've... See, it depends on whether it's the first testicle or the second testicle, because the damages there are totally different and it depends whether it's your testicle or mine i mean it's a view of whether you're damaged but there's no question that if you can produce adequate sperm cells the damage has got to be relatively minimal now the last time i checked most people were not examined by their dates before they were allowed to go out to see if they had one or two testicles but it certainly is a it's a theory the plaintiffs can bring that up as a theory, and they do in many cases. Well, we're going to get there. They had a, a Michigan case, 2011, a half a million dollars. Yeah. The uh, urologist told the ER doctor released a 19-year-old patient, and uh, the case proceeded to trial against the ER doctor, lost a half a million dollars. 2009, Florida case, 15-year-old boy, zero dollars. 2008, $500,000. A Massachusetts case involving testicular torsion in a 14-year-old boy resulting in the loss of testicles. So it seems like this is like all over the dartboard. You're going to get either nothing or a half a million dollars. Yeah, it doesn't make any sense to me. And mostly in the Midwest here, I think that forty, fifty thousand dollars $50,000 figure is where a lot of these things settle out. It gives the kid a little money to go to college the first year. It sues the parents. And it really does not, in the long run, in most cases, affect the fertility of that individual. All right. You're up. Okay. Here's an atypical case out of Philadelphia. Why do we get so many Philadelphia cases? The plaintiff's attorney took the case to trial after the emergency physician's insurance company made an offer of $500,000. They offered fifty thousand. Fifty thousand before going to trial, and a hundred thousand during the trial. The plaintiff's attorney is quoted as saying the offers were never in the ballpark. Ah, 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 ah. The patient was a twenty-seven-year-old law student. On December the eleventh, the ED diagnosis was epididymitis. No ultrasound was ordered. Pursuant to discharge instructions, I hope that's not abnormal discharge instructions, the patient followed up by phone with the urology clinic two days later. 
at his and at his main tertiary hospital. It was advised he had a testicular, testicular torsion over the phone, and he would require emergency surgery. He went to the hospital the next day. The lawyer claimed that as a result of the failure to diagnose, the patient has a deformed testicle. I don't even know what that is. By the way, what is the quality standard there on knowing whether a testicle is deformed or not? It was not fully removed because some regional blood flow persisted along with some quote-unquote infertility. He also claimed that the patient was embarrassed by the shape of his testicle. (laughs) and feared infertility and inability to marry. The award, I can't even say these words, Rick, $8.5 million. Oh, my God. When I have a problem, that's going to be my attorney. Good old Philadelphia. Good old Philadelphia. If he can turn this piece of crap into $8.5 million, oh, my God. Well, this is, it's, it's way too much. Go ahead. Here's another case in which the award seems excessive. It's, um, it's from Philadelphia as well. The patient fell in a sporting injury on her outstretched hand. Well, we know that, uh, what that's yeah, about. Okay, yeah, yeah. Her uh, GP said it was a sprained wrist, but the uh, patient demanded x-rays, which were read by a radiologist as normal. The patient, an intern acting as a surgical tech, continued to use the wrist for three months despite progressive pain and disability. An orthopedist that the intern worked with saw the x-rays and said there's an obvious fracture. Now, they didn't say what bone when, in the stuff that I read about this case. Right. And, and that immobilization was required. And even if the fracture was not seen, immobilization should have taken place, which means we're talking about a, a navicular fracture. Yeah, yeah, that's bottom, what's got to be. Bottom line, the patient, who apparently was a surgical intern at the time and who was said to have wanted to be a surgeon since age three, what an idiot, <laughs> uh, became an anesthesiologist instead and was awarded $7 million. Okay, now this just isn't right on the face of it. So now, instead of working all those uh, odd, strange hours and having uh, pus and things like that to take with, she became an anesthesiologist. She makes just as much, if not more, money. And now she's got uh, $7 million to, to buy her her Maserati or whatever else she's going to do. You know what? This again, this is some, there's something funky here, Rick, but there's got to be some take home messages, right? Well, yeah, I think so. In the, in the last EMA course, now I don't know why I have to remind our listeners about the EMA courses that are coming yes. up here. Why? All 13 of them beginning in February. We're going to Whistler this year as well and Costa Rica and, uh, but but just go to the website. Yeah, C- yeah, Rick, it's now become shameless. Move on. CCME.org. Okay, in any case, this concept is discussed uh, in last year's course, and I wrote the lecture. And I took the position that if it was me, if it was me, I'm not interested in being put in the cast for two weeks and then the cast taken off and re-X-rayed or re-examined. And, th- and theoretically, if you have a broken uh, navicular, you sh- you're supposed to be in a long arm cast in the, in the beginning of this. So I'm not interested in that. I want to know, do I have a fracture or do I not? So I'm a, of the school, which is probably in the minority, 
but this is frankly what I what you would want to do. I want that MRI. Just stick me in the line. Let me. It's no big deal. I can tell you the charges are not that outrageous to have an MRI. I'm not interested in your cast for two weeks. Thank you. And I want to know the diagnosis. All so, right. Let me let me give a counter here quickly, Rick. I agree with you. The only study right now that says yes or no day one is an MRI. I can go with that, but I can also go with a a friend of mine in the Upper Peninsula who runs a family practice, says he'd split them up, do not even do an x-ray the first day if it otherwise looked normal, and just tell him in 10 days if you have pain, I'll I'll do an MRI on that day. And here's the problem. You say it's not that outrageous for an MRI. It depends on who's paying for that study. And if there's no charge, because after all, we are overcharged for a lot of those things incredibly. Hey, listen, uh, I don't but, worry about that. I don't worry about that. I'm on the dole, man. I'm on I, Medicare. I understand. I don't care what that thing costs. I understand it. But the bottom line here is that for you and I to advocate that is the new standard of care today that everybody gets an MRI. I think there are plenty of docs who would uh, would fight that idea, Rick. I just do. Oh yeah, I'm not advocating it as standard of care. It's just it's just t- sometimes standard care is not very good care, and this is an example of that. I want the MRI. Thank you very much. I yeah. want, there are certain times when the MRI is indicated in the emergency department. I think it's indicated in acute knee injuries. I'm not interested in a plain X-ray in, in a knee injury where you have an effusion. Agreed. But you know, it's kind of like. So that was that was the thrust of that very lucid lecture that was given last last year. You know, uh, there's a number of these studies, MRI with regard to back pain in somebody who has a neurologic finding. It is the only study to get. And I always love it when they say, well, we don't have an MRI running 24 hours. Send them someplace that does. If I thought there was a possibility I was going to have compression of my cauda equina, my spinal cord, something like that, I actually want to know the answer to that question. I must have half a dozen cases sitting in my, in my folders right now where they ordered the wrong study and they did it on the wrong time frame and really getting the expensive test as you point out the MRI was the only economically intelligent thing to do and yet they didn't do it not good tell us about David Lang Greg David Lang said that when he gets suspicious that a patient is a <gasps> drug seeker I, I, th- those people would never come to emergency department. He calls some of the local EDs to see if the patient has been there requesting pain meds. Although most of the time the EDs respond to his request for information, recently an ED nurse refused to give information, claiming it was a HIPAA violation. David notes that from his reading, this is not a HIPAA violation, and he also has read that he could be liable by giving a drug-seeking person medications that could cause the patient's danger to others or for the patient to become an addict. David is not totally wrong in this sort of conspiratorial theory he's espousing. You realize the West Virginia Supreme Court just came down against two doctors, a pharmacist, a couple of other docs. When a patient sued claiming that they're giving them pain medication is what 
led them on the road to ruin? Well, you know, because of the power outage which we had this morning, I'm doing this recording from Ricky's house, which is 15 minutes away from mine. But one of the papers that I forgot to bring... <laughs> I told you to bring the paperwork, Ricky. Well, no, this is, this, is a, this is new. Last night I saw in one of the emergency medicine throwaways, it might have been ASEP News, AP Monthly, but there was a thing that about 10 HIPAA situations that you ought to know about, 10 HIPAA situations you ought to know about. And I looked to see whether this case fell into one of those 10, and I think it may be able to be squeezed into one of them. But the fact of the matter is that in some states, we have these drug registries, which uh, means that you don't need to call the nurse kind of thing. You just can look in the drug registry. Although that's still, you know, you might want to call the nurse because you might have thought the guy was at the, at the ER yesterday and didn't fill his pills or they, they had no money for pills or whatever it was. I think that the safest thing is to, is to just do what he did. If somebody's acting up on the other end of the lines, they say, screw it. But most people, I think, would probably tell you. Now, I should try to give a more definitive answer here of this is yes or no. Is this a HIPAA violation or not? I'm afraid I'm not able to do that right now. It takes me a minute. The impossible I do instantly. The very difficult takes me a lot longer. But in any event, I I think that we should point out that HIPAA exempts you when the discussion is about therapy, diagnosis. You don't have to obtain a written permission to get that kind of information. So I think that actually in many ways... HIPAA has good side effects for us as well. It lays those questions out pretty much black and white. And I think that that is an important thing to do. So, you know, whether you get the answer or not from the other hospital, all of us do it. We all check. And I think by the end of 2016, every state in the United States will be put on this, will will have their own registry. There's also agreements on cross-registry checking and all that sort of stuff. You can check in certain states with the three states around you to find out if they've been looking for drugs in other states. Now, I'm sure in Hawaii, you don't have to do that very much. But for the rest of us, knowing this is important. And as I point out, that West Virginia case where the emergency physician went down for being part of the this network that uh, caused the patient to be addicted. What a bunch of crap that sounds like to me. But in any event, David Lang is not wrong to be at least suspicious of this. But in all truth, I don't think emergency doctors are the major problem in pain medicine, Rick. I just don't. No, I don't either. Leova Rivera sent us a three-parter. The first part Can a letter be sent to a super user advising them they will receive uh, a treatment protocol worked out with their primary care physician and that this will become the standard of care for them? This is basically a letter that says it's a CYA letter and Leova basically gave us a copy of something that he thought this would be good. He wanted to know whether we knew if there were any such letters, but his letter is super, super, super cover your ass, but... Then and then there's a key part of it that gets into this part. Here you go. This is the quote. So for your safety, our emergency department will no longer provide pain management with opioid medications. That is the gist of this letter. And I think that it certainly makes me nervous when you 
basically tell people in advance, don't bother coming because we're not going to give you opiates if that's what you think you need. And the reason I got nervous about it is because it may have been discouraging people from going to the ER. However, I asked our friend Bob Bitterman, who is uh, Dr. Mtala, and uh, Bob said, Mtala is in force when somebody comes to the emergency department seeking care. This is not about people who don't come to the emergency department or about to come to the emergency department. It's like, and so he says, this does not qualify. It's not an Mtala-related issue. Yeah, we'd like to thank Bob for uh, taking the time to answer this. You know, I was an old partner of Bob's. He was practicing well, going to law school, as I remember it, many, many years ago. And nobody knows more about Mtala situations than Bob does. And I think he points out things that are absolutely correct, that it's not that you're in front of someone refusing them care. We've done this. Rick, we've sent this letter from one of the hospitals I was associated with. And before we sent our first letter, we came up with rules and regs. The first letter, the first rule is, number one, you never refuse anyone care or imply in the letter that they would not be seen correctly. Because basically the law says we'll see everybody. We'll, you know, we... (laughs) We'll take your hungry, your poor, your huddled masses. We'll look at everyone. Number two, it doesn't say we're not going to evaluate you. Number three, it doesn't say we're not going to treat your pain. It says we may use other techniques for your pain. But you, nev- but you always try and convey the idea that this is in their best interest. After all, there's nothing simpler for an emergency doc to write a script, hand it off, and get them out. This really has to do with their long-term health, and I, th- I think it should be viewed in that way. And I do not have a case, have not seen one, and from other guys I know around the country who do a lot of cases, I have not heard of a case related to the sending of one of these sort of Dear John letters, you know, which essentially says, we're on to you, and uh, this is what's going to happen. You know, he also makes a couple of other points. He notes that this letter would best come from a combination of the primary care physician along with the emergency physicians. He also suggested that there be some elements of community education regarding the use of pain medications in the emergency department. And then after a medical screening examination, that this education be reinforced to the involved people. My concern, however is that this very specifically says no, will no longer provide pain management with opioid medications. I think that it would might be prudent to say pain management will be given with medications felt to be appropriate to the situation. By excluding opiates like that, I think that uh, makes me more nervous. I would rather have it in the positive that we will treat pain appropriate to the situation with the medications we feel that are uh, uh, that are indicated. Ricky, you are so politically correct. And uh, so I think this will go well. Oh, question number two. This this uh, lister, by the way, is getting a threefer today. Not a twofer, a threefer. Okay, the second question. Any idea how I can get radiology to give real-time ED x-ray reports? Hello, Rick and Greg are, are calling to you, doctor. Uh it's now 2015. I was carrying on this fight with radiology 20 years ago. 
today with all the, the ways of sending films anywhere in the world uh, to get them read, there shouldn't be a problem getting a real-time reading of a film. You need to go to administration in the hospital and say, this is a dangerous situation. There are people being paid to read these films. They ought to have, if they're going to get paid for it, they ought to read it when the patient can benefit from the reading. How useful is it to get a result saying C-spine uh, suspect fracture at uh, C4, re repeat films or CT required? That's real useful coming back Monday morning when the patient was seen Friday night. I mean, I don't understand this. And I, as I often point out, I do a lot of work for the military. The U.S. Navy on its carriers all have CT machines, and I'm sure they're going to have MRIs shortly. Uh, they send them back over satellite to Bethesda, Maryland. They're read and sent back. So my other suggestion to you is have a Navy recruiter in your ER. Get them to join the Navy. We'll put them on a carrier, ship them to sea. I think you're losing and, it, Greg. <laughs> and then we'll get a reading in a real time. I mean, th this to me... With where technology is today, I, I just you, don't think would, you can do this anymore. Would you like to give anything resembling a practical suggestion to this uh, question, doctor? <laughs> yes. I, I think you go down to the, to, to the uh, board of the hospital or to the administrator and say, look, nobody's doing this anymore. This is liability. I take the hospital's attorney with you and just say, is this a good thing or a bad thing? I take your insurance guy with you and say, you know what? We think this is this is undue risk here, and uh, we don't want to be involved in it. And I would think that the administrator ought to be motivated by the fact that you want to give out reasonable care when it's required. And uh, I don't I don't see this as this is something left over from the last century, and we just need to be honest about it. He mentions that typically it takes 48 to 72 hours to get a <laughs> reading back because they have to send the tra transcription and then it goes back to the radiologist for signature and that's when they get it. He notes that it up to, this can occur up to five days after the x-ray is taken, I guess, if the weekend's there, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, obviously, Rick, I'm having chest pain. You're going to have to resuscitate me here because I don't know how I go in to defend that kind of care. I just don't understand it. I bet the radiologist bill reaches the patient before the reading reaches the ER. Well, that, you know, I agree fully. You need to go to the CEO of the hospital and say, this is unacceptable. These are likely contract doctors and they need to, they need to get their act together and this turnaround will not be tolerated. You need to change your contract, whatever it is, because it's endangering patients. The second way to deal with this is to start billing for reading x-rays in the emergency department. I can't think of a faster way for radiologists to come on board and say, oh, no, 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 we'll take care of it, we'll get it done, because it's, it's the first guy who gets the bill out, who gets paid, and so the idea here is that would incentivize these guys to read these x-rays in a timely manner. Yeah, more than that, it's always daylight somewhere in the world. There's a radiologist somewhere who will read these films, I promise you. This can be worked out, you know, without using any of the proprietary names. There's all kinds of companies. This is what they do for a living. 
And I think if you can't, if the radiologists don't want to take turns and provide the reading from home or whatever they want to do, somebody needs to do it. And that's just not right. Question okay. number three deals with misrepresentation. Doctor notes that uh, he is not ABEM certified. He has extensive training. He's boarded in family medicine and certified by the American Board of Physician Specialties in Emergency Medicine. Is he misrepresenting himself as an emergency physician in the rural ED in which he practices? Absolutely, 100%. No, you are not misrepresenting yourself. Nobody said you had to be a board certified, ABEM board certified doctor to say you're uh, the <coughs> emergency medicine. If that's what you do and your training is in it, I, I, I think I'm Dr. So-and-so, I'm the emergency physician on duty. Yeah, and that's all you really need to do. Uh, Rick and I both remember, and this is a trip down memory lane. Uh, I was practicing seven years before there was a board to take, and that's when there were two plans functioning in the United States. The first one was the Pontiac plan, which basically had people on the staff of the hospital rotate in the emergency department. So you may come in with your heart attack, and it's the dermatologist who's on or you may come in with your eight-inch laceration, and it's the internist that's on. Those were sad, dark days in emergency medicine. And then all of a sudden, in the late uh, 60s, came the Alexandria plan, where all the docs in the emergency department, that's all they did. They practiced emergency medicine. And I think that came with sort of the, the great dawning of, of the specialty, and uh, this, this is important. That What we've said is you work in the department. This is what you do for a living. And I would pay attention to that. Now, misrepresentation is interesting. You brought this subject up because I have two cases which are going on, which have to do with willful and wanton misrepresentation. That is a nurse who was an RN slash PhD uh, uh, referred to herself as Dr. So-and-so and the staff would ha had been instructed by her to refer herself as Dr. So-and-so. Now, the lawyer, the plaintiff's lawyer, is putting forward the fact that in the common parlance, a doctor is an MD or a DO. And that, and this is the question that was asked the, plaint the plaintiff, the patient, did you know that this person was not a, an MD or a DO? He said, no. He said, if I'd known that, I would have asked for their supervisor's opinion as to what was going on. You know, Rick, this is, this is funky territory we're in now. And I think, I think we haven't seen the end of these kinds of situations. I'll be more than happy to come on this show when I get when when I when these two cases are resolved and talk about them. Well, it's my understanding that several states now have or at least proposed regulations that would say that a um, PhD and P would not be uh, allowed to introduce themselves in the context of seeing a patient as a doctor because common parlance is that you're, if you say doctor, you're a medical doctor or a DO. Uh, but as you know, there's this huge trend to have NPs getting PhDs. I'm not so sure I understand that trend, but in fact, one of our NPs became a PhD 
and it didn't seem to have anything to do with increasing clinical skills or the like. He went, I think, once every month or so to Pittsburgh for a long weekend where he was getting training, and it was also on the internet as well, and he finally got it. And I admire him for his tenacity. I'm not quite sure what he has achieved, however, though. By the way, Rick, what's the difference between an MD and a PhD? Ooh, about $180,000 a year. <laughs> Go on. <laughs> Here's a final comment from our friend. He works with the physician who wrote to us about his practice of writing down every word that the patient says when, they're, when he's generating the history. You remember that case? Oh, yes. Oh, oh my God. When, uh, you, when you think about what people say, uh, you know, if you're typing it, you'd wear out the, the M key and the F key pretty quickly, I'm afraid. Well, in any case, he, uh, uh, apparently this physician did not heed our advice, which we, we, uh, I think we said it was completely nutty to do this. Yeah, insane, right. And, and that it was the doctor's job to synthesize all of that uh, undifferentiated garbage into a cogent history uh, of the uh, present illness and past medical history. And that's his job, but not to just put down every word that the person is saying in an attempt to show how incoherent the patient was. In any case, this doctor is continuing to do that despite our sage advice. And this doctor, his colleague, said reading his charts is very amusing. I'm sure it's amusing. I'm sure it's highly salacious. Unfortunately, I just don't think we have the time to, to put down all that stuff into the chart. I don't you know, want to put it down. I don't, care I don't want to put time. it down. No. You know, one of the reasons I went into emergency medicine was after two minutes, I'm bored now. All of us are ADD and ADHD. If you actually had to sit and record of that, I might as well be an internist if I was going to do that, Rick. It just, it'd kill me. It'd actually kill me. Oh, by the way, we've mentioned Mark Calvert here. He's our attorney friend who's been on a number of times with us, and he has been gracious enough to send us his summary of the new 2015 updates to the reporting requirements for the National Practitioner Data Bank. Now, all of us know that this, this is the boogeyman that sits out there and your name's going to be sent to it. You know, I'm not sure we've ever made a decision on hiring or not hiring based on one filing in the data bank. Truth of the matter is, if you practice in difficult situations and certain kinds of specialists, you can't be a neurosurgeon and not have gone to the data bank. It's part of the business. Even in emergency medicine, going to the data bank is, is a lot like dying and going to hell. At least you're there with all your friends. I, I have no idea who's in heaven. And it, it may take place. But they've changed some of the rules. And uh, this is the first update in a decade. So I think that the overall tone, as Mark points out, is for new additions to the rules to err on the side of reporting rather than not reporting in gray zone cases. He also points out that the changes in definitions appear to expand on the number of situations in which a report should be filed. He also affirms that just payouts have to be reported, not what are known as loss adjustment expenses. For those of you who don't know it, we keep two records at an insurance company. It's what the overall cost is 
what it cost us to hire accountants, attorneys, experts, lawyers, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And there's what then there's called indemnity payment, that which you actually turned over to the person. Now, you remember if a client, if, if a patient wins money, they only get about two thirds of that at best anyway, because the rest went to pay their attorneys. So if you actually look at the amount of money in the insurance systems that goes to injured parties, it's real small. But those things are not, allocated loss adjustments are not reported to the data bank. Now, there's been some other changes that say some very strange things. Two of them are, number one, if the physician pays this out of his pocket, I don't know why he would. I I can't imagine what kind of money we're talking about here. But a physician opens his checkbook and writes a check for this. That does not have to be reported to the data bank. This would obviously be for there's a court decision because all of those have to be reported. But there was also a change for the hospitals as well. If they decide before there is a written complaint to exchange some money or services or this, that, and other thing, those also don't have to be reported to the data bank. So we'd like to thank Mark for bringing us up to date on these comments. Rick? A couple other points. Yes, you could have a judgment of thirty, forty, fifty thousand dollars $50,000, and write a check for that. If you are really, really weird about not wanting to be in the data bank, which I don't think you should be really, really weird about it. I mean, what, what's going to happen? You're in the data bank, $50,000 for a test, testicle. Uh, the other thing that I was really, really behind on is I recall when there was a, a threshold and if there was a settlement $30,000 or higher, you had to be entered into the data bank, but anything below that was viewed as just annoyance, and you didn't. Apparently, that's not the case any longer, and $1 needs to be reported into the data bank. Now, is that your understanding too, Greg? Yes, that's, that, that, that is my understanding. We're going to have to get Mark on the show again and, and go through some of this because it may make some decisions in settlement or when a hospital or a physician enters the discussion to settle the case. And so um, th- this, th- these are some changes and we ought, to be, we ought to be up on it. You know, I got an uh, email from Brian Williams yesterday. Did you see this, Greg, Brian I, Williams? I, I didn't. What does it say? Well, it says says you haven't checked your email because uh, it went to you from my crack support team. No, I haven't. (laughs) I haven't. Go ahead. All right. It says, uh, he says some nice things about this and listening to us. And he also does some expert witness work as as well. He says uh, the case he's concerned about involves a rural emergency department in New Mexico staffed by a family physician. He unfortunately made an error in judgment resulting in a patient's death. To make a long story short, he transferred a patient with multiple trauma to the closest trauma center by helicopter without addressing or stabilizing the patient's pneumothorax, which was (laughs) identified at his facility. The changes in altitude from the flight and the altitude differences of the two centers resulted in a tension pneumothorax and the patient expired on the receiving hospital's helicopter pad. Now, here's the question. In your opinions... Is the standard of care for an emergency physician the standard to which this physician must be held since he is a family physician working in the emergency department? 
This is not the type of mistake that a board-certified residency-trained emergency physician would make. However, this was a family doctor covering his local emergency department. Given that there are not enough emergency medicine-trained doctors to cover all of the EDs in this country, should family practice or non-boarded physicians be held to the same standard? Taking this one step further, if the standard of care becomes somewhat fluid depending on the environment in which he practices, will there be multiple standards of care for an academic center, an urban center, a suburban provider? I am interested in your thoughts. This is from Brian Williams, Reston Hospital in Reston, Virginia. Lots of thoughts. Number one, there's always been multiple standards of care. It is always situationally dependent. You do not get the same care in Ishpeming, Michigan at 2 o'clock in the morning as you might get in the Mayo Clinic at 2 o'clock in the afternoon. Anybody who believes that, that uh, we do the same things is, is smoking cannabis. Uh, it never happened, never will. Secondly, we all have certain levels of expertise, and we do the best that we can do. I would agree that the training of an emergency physician, somebody who that's the only thing they do for a living, should certainly know about, about uh, changes in interthoracic pressure and going in helicopters, should know about the need to put in a chest tube. I'm willing to bet that this family practitioner hadn't put in a chest tube in 20 years, Rick. I, I bet it would be a very rare event. This is a case where the patient might have been better going by ground than by air at that moment in time. But there is no question that in most jurisdictions, for example, here in Michigan, if the person working in the emergency department is family practice-based, they try and get experts, the, the defense try and gets experts of people who are family practitioners who also work in an emergency department. Because um, you're right, it isn't, the level of expectation should not be the same in those two groups. Right. Isn't the standard of care something about similar doctors in similar situations? Like or similar training under like or similar circumstances. So in this case, this is a family physician. This, this is not training in emergency medicine. They're not, I don't think they can be held to the same standard as a board-certified emergency physician. Here's Which, an interesting question. If the hospital bylaws require the physicians to take a certain amount of time in the emergency department, that means they're taking from a group of people, none of whom do it, regularly for a living and that therein lies the problem therein lies the case well there's also the issue of is uh, something like atls required by the hospital for you to work in the emergency department acls those kinds of merit badges yeah that's well that's the height of science but uh, yes i th i think that all of those questions come up not just about the doctor but about the hospital its policies its procedures small hospitals can only do certain things. And in most cases, getting the patient out of there is the best thing they can do. Speaking of small hospitals and family physicians working in them, Greg, you're going to be going to the ASAP council meeting, which by the time this gets out may be over, but I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, just, you know, if you have to go get a sandwich, use the toilet, now's the time to do it. Rick, go ahead. 
rant and rave. Well, you know, there's the council's going to be discussing for the 10th or 11th time the acknowledgement of family physicians and other physicians who practice emergency medicine in rural areas. There are about 1,340 of these hospitals that are called, come on, help me out. Critical, critical access hospitals. Thank you, doctor. So there's about 1,300 of them. And if you look at the statistics from the AMA and the ASEP and such, there's about 10,000 physicians who, at least as a secondary practice, practice in emergency medicine. Many of these physicians would like to come into the college, not necessarily as full-fledged members, but as associate members or something like that, where they can be accessing the educational uh, components that the college provides, which uh, a ton of it is on the internet. You're only going to see it if you are on the ASEP email list, which means that you're an ASEP member. And every time in the past, the 10 times it's been brought up again, the it was turned down. There is this elitist attitude now that you have to be board certified. When, but when you look at the college's charter, so nothing said anything about board certified. It talked about providing quality emergency care. So obviously my position on this is that these people should be recognized in some way and allowed under the tent. In addition, having instead of 35,000, 45,000 people under the tent is this more clout in Washington. Yep. So, Greg, I know I'm talking a losing story because there's going to be this elitism that is going to prevail, generally pushed by the residency directors because they think that this is a, a slap in the face of residency training, which obviously it's not. But it gave me an opportunity to talk about this, Greg, because when you have a microphone, you can talk. It's like Yes, I, I, I'm beginning to understand that. Remember that nobody, everybody has to be credentialed at a hospital, and people look. I have never seen anybody ask the question, are you a member of the American College of Emergency Physicians or a, a member of the American Academy of Emergency Medicine? Those aren't questions which hospitals ask. And they should. They, they look at your training, your experience, your board certification, but they never ask about which professional societies you're a member of. And I, I think we could have a long involved debate as to what the functions of the professional societies really are. Their trade organizations is exactly what they are. Well, I understand that, Rick, but you understand how that inflames part of the literate, well, you know, the cognoscente, all get, get upset when you use those sorts of terms. Although, yes. Greg, given the fact that we have been members of the college for 40 years, yes, we have a certain privilege in saying these kinds of things. We're not the new guys. We've been around. We were in, in the first residencies when the specialty was brand new. We were practicing emergency medicine before the boards existed. Yes. So I think that it's not quite the same. It's not quite the same when we give our opinion about this. Our, our opinion obviously is carries much, much, much more weight as it should. Yes. Oh no, <laughs> this is this is unfortunate. Oh god. All right, let's do some cases, Rick. What do you think? All right, I, I'll settle down. Okay. I, you know, take your medicine. I've I've hit him with a with a long distance held all blow dart, so he'll be better. Oh, now. About oh, you know. Let's do a, a thing about taking medicine because I, I am a little 
down in the dumps here because my good friend and colleague, Billy Mallon, who I've known for the last 20 years, who has been the most, uh, probably the, the most eloquent, productive, prodigious teacher at the University of Southern California, it, in the biggest one of the biggest residencies in the country, has been sw- swooped away by Peter Vicellio and Billy's starting to work there in the middle of November at Stony Brook. And congratulations, Peter. You really pulled a, pulled a coup. And shame on USC for letting this fabulous, fabulous teacher escape them. By the way, in November, I am going to Stony Brook as the first visiting professor tied up with Billy Mallon, so we will do our best to entertain the, the troops Well, I tell there. you, if Billy's there, you're not going to get a word in edgewise. I anyway. understand that, right, exactly. Let's start out with just a few quickies here. Brain surgery performed unnecessarily after wrong name affixed to brain scan results. <laughs> F- $20 million Michigan verdict, and the guy who got the case was the most verbose lawyer in the country, Jeffrey Figer. You remember he was the attorney for Dr. Kevorkian. Remember Dr. Death? Mm-hmm. Well, there was no question about it. They took this guy to the operating room based on a wrong identification marker on a CT scan, but it was not a minute-to-minute case. It wasn't a subdural or an epidural. It had to do with a tumor. Unfortunately, he didn't have a tumor. And so 20 million bucks, and maybe somebody ought to ask a few more questions on the way into the operating room. Isn't, isn't that a bear? I mean, it's just, it's just awful. Yeah, you know, they have all of these rules and regulations about timeouts and marking the leg that is going to be having the knee fixed on it and having the patient agree while before they've been put under all of these kinds of safeguards. And a mistake like this is pretty much unheard of. I mean, don't you think the patient would say something about, what, what do you mean brain surgery? I'm here for, I'm here for, a, you know, a, a backache or something. Brain <laughs> yeah, surgery? Is, exactly. is that the way they fix back problems now? You take you know, out your Rick, brain? Yeah, I, I hate, I can't comment on that, but let me tell you, this doesn't look good to me. All right, let's do another one. And I promise you, I will not for six months do another one of these cases, but it was a CT scan delayed more than four hours for a patient presented to the emergency room with low back pain and leg weakness. Well, A number one, they did the wrong test. (laughs) They did a CT scan. Hello, if you're looking at the spinal cord and you're not doing an MRI, you are an idiot. Unless you're looking at a trauma case or something. But these people actually did the wrong test. And it's absolutely wild to me. That, that at this point in time, with where we are, and this isn't back in Backwoods something, this is in Chicago, Illinois, which of course is Cook County, which is the worst place to ever have to try a case for a defendant's standpoint, and $10 million was awarded. Now, again, I'm the most defense-oriented guy in the country, but if I think if that, if that was my brother, I don't think $10 is enough. 
I mean, I well, would just your, get your, angry about it. For your brother, it would be more than enough, but... <laughs> yeah, right. Okay, that's right. I understand. But I honestly think that that's the kind of stuff that it just, it just ain't right. And, uh, well, I guess we have to give, give some kudos to the lawyer there who took that case and, and did it right. But, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, I don't know how many times we can talk about this. Don't even think about a CT scan. Well, you know, I wouldn't... I wouldn't. When, when they're back... When the patient is now becoming weak in the legs. Well, you know, a lot of places, like at my hospital, you could not get a seat, uh, MRI quickly at night. You may be able to have gotten it, but it was going to be a big deal, special occasion kind of you thing. You know what I could do at your hospital, Rick? Send, put him in an ambulance and send him to Cedars. Well, that's, if, I'd send him to a closer hospital than, than that. But but the point is, is that... In most ERs, in most ERs, you can grab a CT in a matter of minutes. And if you see on your CT all of these compressed vertebrae kind of thing, that just helps make the diagnosis that there's, you know, some kind of invasive process, some kind of cancer, some kind of whatever. No neurosurgeon who would operate on that case that night without an MRI. Well, I'm not. I'm not saying only get the CT, but CTs are so readily available that while I'm waiting for the MRI, I would probably entertain myself by getting a CT as long as it resulted in no delay. That's like the drunk who is looking for his keys on, uh, you know, under the streetlight. Well, he actually lost them over there someplace else in the dark, but it's dark over there. You see, I, I just hate the concept of thinking because it's easy, we get it. I mean, they could have done a, a thyroid study on him, too. It's easy. It's simple. It just has nothing to do with this disease entity. Okay. Maybe, may, maybe I need the held all now. Who knows? Next case. And I remember your reaction to this yesterday when I presented it. It's a failure to diagnose strep A infection and provide a woman with alternative a diagnostic information and choices, sepsis develops leading to an amputation of all four limbs, $25 million award. And this isn't in Illinois. This is in Wisconsin. And the, the plaintiffs in this case have an all-star lineup of emergency medicine infectious disease people who uh, just pummeled them, just took them apart. So uh, just understand, strep is still out there. When somebody is leaving, febrile, shaking, and weak, maybe you ought to ask yourself another question. Yeah, I guess the question here is, what is the lesson that we are supposed to learn from this? Uh, Without more details, it's kind of hard to take much out of this case because, you know, strep is really pretty uncommon. You know, Wisconsin, for, for all... I know it might have been frostbite that caused them the four <laughs> extremities. You know, they might have really screwed up the diagnosis. And I'm sure next you're going to say, and the plaintiff didn't have a leg to stand on. No, so I'm not, not me. Gonna, yeah, okay. We're not going to let you get and, into and, that. And where was the source of this thing? Was it the throat? Was it a cellulitis? Was, you know, it, it's, it's peri, it, I, I believe it was perirectal. Which are, those are considered to be kind of nasty. And, but, but I think that many times 
these summaries of cases are tough because we were looking for take-home messages of doctor don't do this or doctor do that uh, do that and it's often difficult in these short summaries that were that you're borrowing from what's it Louis Lasker or whatever his name is yes that, yes yes that, yes that book that you get yes and, and you're right it doesn't have a doctor's level information to go with some of the cases. Next, want to hear another one? Since we've had this discussion about being a, an emergency doc, whether you've got a board or not sort of thing, we have a case in Missouri where part of the accusation against the emergency physician and against the hospital was negligent credentialing, which caused a failure to diagnose an aortic aneurysm and death. Now, this was a, a big gentleman, well over 300 pounds, sort of unusual symptoms, that sort of thing. But one of the things claimed was this patient and the, the plaintiff's expert in emergency medicine, whose name I will not use, M-D-F-A-C-E-P-B-F-D, who said, <laughs> who said, if this guy had been uh, board-certified, residency-trained in emergency medicine, the patient would be alive today. Well, first of all, that's not true in aortic aneurysms. A lot of people die. <laughs> with even the best even with the, the right diagnosis. Well, the right diagnosis and the right hospital. I mean, if you think most hospitals in the United States can take a case like this emergently to the operating room, you are just full of crap. It is often difficult to, to organize everything to get this thing done. But it's very interesting that the, uh, the Missouri jury didn't buy that argument. This was a defense verdict that they did those things which were reasonable to work up this patient. And, it, and, and he was there for, uh, I guess, beginning till, till death, you know, almost six hours. But the way they went about it and went through it and did their usual rule outs, you realize there are 700 times more myocardial infarcts in the country than there are thoracic aortic dissections. 700 times. So if you look at all those numbers and they went the direction of a heart attack at first, you know what? There are plenty of us with boards who may have, who may have uh, had this problem. The issue here is that this physician was not board certified in emergency medicine, and therefore he, because of that, this person lost their lives. What a yep. bunch of crap that is. But, and, but you know what? It's not what we think is crap. It's what 12 people picked from the voters' rolls, or, or now it's the driver's license rolls, have to say. So be careful of this. And in California... People get driver's license who are not even citizens. Well, listen, what was the amount they awarded here? Zero. That's what exactly should have been. Zero. Yes, exactly uh, see, right. I, I, thought, I, I thought I was going to get a surprise here because nope. this is getting back to the same issue. If you want to live in a rural area, you ought to be thankful that, uh, that family physicians are willing to work in the emergency department to help you guys out. This is called Darwinian. If you want yeah. to live in the middle of nowhere, you've got to be willing to go to hospitals that don't necessarily have all the kinds of specialists that you're going to need. And there's an intrinsic risk in doing that. But I think that these physicians should not be hammered. Their intentions are good. 
They may have some special training in emergency medicine. They may have taken some courses. If anything, we should try to encourage them to learn more and, and bring, bring them under the tent. Damn it. A difficult case which all of us could have been involved in. Actually, it was not in the emergency department. It was after the patient went from the emergency department up to the floor. And this was, this was a patient who had a tracheostomy tube in place. And the staff on the floor went to turn the patient in bed. Now, they could only get two staff members. Somebody's down the hall doing this or that or something else. So as they turned the patient, what happened to the tracheostomy tube, Rick? It came out. Came out. Oh, Jesus. And Christ. now they're trying to put this tube back in. The patient arrests. The, 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 the patient didn't just have brain damage. They went right through cardiac arrest and death. And this eventuated into a $3 million settlement. This is a 35-year-old patient. And as they got plenty of hospital people from around the country to come in and say, if you're going to turn a patient, somebody has to be assigned to watch the airway. You can't have two people turn a patient unless it's, you know, the bed's on fire or some emergent situation. But this was a planned movement of the patient. And they said they should have waited until they had at least one more person to help turn the patient. Sometimes in the emergency department, we always feel rushed to do things. But in this case, I mean, I can understand. This is a 35-year-old. I can understand why the family was a little upset about this. Oh, absolutely. And, you would wonder yeah. why they would not have a respiratory therapist in association with this move. have no idea why, why, why they didn't. And, of course, that was part of the trial itself. But, you know, some of these things are absolutely bizarre and you don't know you don't know what to do with them and it's uh, it's it's an unfortunate situation and you know i f i feel bad for that family just like i would for the i'm sure there was no malintent intended on the part of any of the people but uh, these these things could have been seen in advance and prevented and it's not a good thing by the way, let's pick on somebody else who tries the ER for a, a session, just a section here. Prescription for minoxidil misfilled with methotrexate. Oh, my God. Does and that sound good to you, Rick? What, and what happened with the hair? Well, it, the hair, the hair wasn't, it was the least of the problems. It was the nephrotoxicity with kidney damage, loss of hair, all the usual sorts of things. But... You know, these things, they're not perfect. I'd been given a medication which was double the size of what I usually take for my diabetes. It was an oral medication at that time. And, and uh, just so happens, I wondered why for two days I felt a little funny. And I'm looking at the TV and I'm getting a little diplopia. And I went up and looked at the bottle I thought it was just a new producer, something like that. No, it was a thousand milligrams they'd put in the tablets and not 500. You know, whenever you're in doubt on these things, take a look. It's, it's worthwhile. You got anything else worthwhile before we uh, sign off here? We, got, we have about, uh, let me see here, we have about 10 minutes left. Of course. I, we'll come up with a, a, a five minute case and then, we will, then we'll have wine of the month. Oh, 
here's one for you. And I can see this happening. And I know, I know we can be a part of it. There was severe brain damage and then death to a 67-year-old woman who was being moved from dialysis center at the hospital. The EMTs put her on the stretcher. They did not exactly coordinate. You know how, how those legs always fold under as the thing gets pushed in? Mm-hmm. Well, for some reason, the coordination wasn't good. They dropped her straight on her head, subdural hematoma. The, old, the take home from this is, again, back to our other movement case, is if you've decided you're going to do this, you either have to do it right or not at all. And in part of the depositions, he's, one of the EMT said, well, we were in a hurry to get back online. You can't be in so much of a hurry that you don't do the job in front of you correctly. And I think at a certain point in time, that's not a good thing. No, I'm not going to argue with you there. We just did a board review course about 3,500, 4,000 poor doctors are going to have to research this uh, in about two weeks or three weeks or cert. And I'd rather have a root canal done. But we have this board review course. And one of the things that is not in that course is there are some things that relate to ER procedures, and one of them is restraining patients. And they make it very clear that the restraining of patients is a dangerous affair, and especially when the patient is resisting, and that the number of people required to do an adequate restraint is five, one on each leg and one to control the head. And immediately after the patient is restrained, there is a search done for any injuries that may have occurred during this process. Then the, mm-hmm. the Joint Commission gets involved in you know, how often they have to be checked and how frequently there has to be an assessment about whether the patient could be taken out of restraints, et cetera, et cetera. They're age-related and the like. But you can get yourself into substantial trouble if you don't have enough manpower to do the job. And you've just given us two cases where that was the, uh, the situation and restraints in the hospital in general, a patient's going ape, that kind of thing. Can't get the Haldol blow dart in quickly enough. you got to hold them down. It's five people. That's the yep. answer to the board question, five people. And by the way, if you are in a small to medium-sized suburban or rural or semi-rural hospital, getting five people isn't easy all the time. Been there, done that. It's it's not good. And once you've got them restrained, particularly in obstreperous patients, at least search them for weapons and lighters. We had a case at the University of Michigan where the guy got into his pocket, got his lighter, tried to burn his restraints off, accidentally touched his, uh, his gown, and his gowns went up in flame. The nurse came back in and there are flames jumping all over this guy's chest. If you don't think that wasn't a problem, medically, legally, I promise you it was. All right. End of the day here. Rick, I'm going to give you a clue as to the winery involved in this particular wine. Born on a mountain top. Oh, right, there you go. Ted. Okay. Well, who is it? Well, it's Daniel Boone. Uh, no, actually, it's Fess Parker. Fess Parker, Fess Parker owns the better part of Santa Barbara. Yes, and it was very, very clever as a uh, young investor and uh, bought lots and lots of land up in that area. There is a hotel there 
under his name and he owns that whole area is just turning into like the, the Napa Valley of uh, Southern California. No question about it. And, uh, you know, you hear all of these uh, rich rock stars and football players and all that who are broke five years later. Fess Parker was the exact opposite. Uh, he, he, he couldn't afford to go back into acting if, if he was still alive. In any event, the Fess Parker 2014 Chardonnay, Santa Barbara, selling at 19 bucks a bottle, was rated in the 90s by Parker, the wine advocate. I've had this now twice. It's terrific. And by the way, it's sold in all the haughty, expensive places. Oh, you mean Costco. Costco, exactly. (laughs) It's funny that Costco sells some of the best wines that when you actually taste them and drink them, they're terrific. So uh, 19 bucks a bottle, Fess Parker 2014 Chardonnay, I'm going to support that one. It's uh, it's really tasty. Rick, I think we're about done for today. Well, yeah, you know, uh, before we just finish, last night I was watching a two-parter on PBS about Walt Disney. and I saw that. And it was absolutely, absolutely fascinating. And I encourage you, if you see it on TV in your area on PBS, take the time. The man was... was it was just an outstanding show, and uh, the fellow was just an, an incredible, incredible person in many, many ways. All right, I'm out of here. Bye. Talk with you next month. <laughs>